Well, take your Bibles and turn to John, John 18, and we're going to pick up in our study of the Gospel of John and uh, pick up where we left off, right in the middle of the trial of Jesus Christ before Pilate. And the last time we looked at John 18, uh, verses 28 through 38. And uh, this morning, we're just going to look at two verses here uh, that I think uh, could be very easily uh, overlooked, quickly passed over, uh, but I think there's some rich uh, imagery and implications here in these two verses that I'd like to expand upon this morning uh, in a message titled, The Substitute. John 18, verse 38 Pilate, when he had said this, went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Father, thank you for just the intricacies of the Gospel of John and how John just included everything that we needed to understand that Jesus truly is God, your Son, who came to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that all of us deserved to die. And I pray that as we consider this really minor character, Barabbas, this morning, that through his life, we would ultimately see Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, the trial of Jesus Christ was the most outrageous, horrendous miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. Now, living in America, we've grown accustomed to a flawed justice system, have we not? I mean, verdicts are issued every day in our country um, that are totally inconsistent. They make no sense at all whatsoever. But imagine if you picked up the newspaper or turned on the nightly news and heard or read this scenario. A man accused of murder had been aggressively prosecuted to receive the death penalty. And yet after months of deliberation and after hearing all of the evidence, the judge pronounced the man not guilty. The prosecuting attorneys went ballistic and they told the judge there was no way that he could let this man go free because he was such a threat to society. This had never happened before and it caught the judge by surprise. And so he asked the court to adjourn to give him some more time to think over his decision. An hour later, he returned to the bench with a solution that he thought would appease the attorneys. He said, after reviewing the case further, I still believe this man is innocent. Nevertheless, I've decided to to make him serve five years in the state penitentiary. Well, to the judge's amazement, rather than appeasing them, this decision made them even more hostile. And they insist that this man deserves to die. The judge was more confused than ever, and he accused himself, or excused himself uh, to rethink the case, and now he was in a real quandary. He wanted to release the man because he was convinced he had done nothing wrong, but he knew he was risking his position and reputation as a judge if he went against the angry attorneys. 
And so he had to come up with a compromise that would satisfy them, even if it meant laying his integrity aside. But while the judge was out of the courtroom, the prosecuting attorneys mingled with the crowd and stirred them up against the defendant. And when the judge finally came back into the courtroom, the crowd was in a frenzy and he calmed them down and he presented what he considered to be a surefire solution. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a choice. Do you want me to release this man or Charles Manson? He reasoned that surely no one would want a notorious murderer like Charles Manson running around loose. But to his dismay, everyone in the courtroom cried out in unison, Release Charles Manson! And the judge stammered, and, well, what do I do with this innocent man? And they yelled back, lethal injection, electrocution, we don't care, we just want him dead. The judge couldn't believe his ears, but he realized that the courtroom was out of control, and the last thing he wanted was a riot, and so he gave in to the crowd, and he released Charles Manson and sentenced the other man to death. Now, if that verdict was ever handed down in this country, it would produce national outrage, would it not? Now, that would be the most unbelievable, corrupt trial in American history, would it not? Well, guess what? That trial did happen, and this verdict was issued, not in America, but in Israel 2,000 years ago. The Roman governor, Pilate, sentenced Jesus Christ to be crucified and released a notorious criminal, not unlike Charles Manson. His name just happened to be Barabbas. Now, most of us are familiar with this infamous character, but typically Barabbas is either briefly mentioned or passed over altogether in the account of the death of Jesus Christ. However, in my opinion... While Barabbas simply played a minor role, you could say, in in the drama of redemption, he served as the most profound picture of the substitutionary atonement of Christ in the whole Bible. You say, what is that substitutionary atonement? That's a big, fancy word. What does that mean, substitutionary atonement? It simply means that Christ died as our what? Substitute. A substitute is a a person acting or serving in the place of another. We've all had a substitute teacher, right? Those were our favorite days in school, right? Yes, substitute. Somebody who stood in, right, for our teacher. So a substitute, in this sense, Christ as our substitute, means that he suffered in our place. He paid the penalty for our sins. He offered himself as a sacrifice to cover our sins so that we could be forgiven. Now, this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ is drawn from several key passages in both the Old and New Testament. I want you to see... Uh, these verses with me. And so take your Bibles and turn back to Isaiah 53, just to start. Isaiah chapter 53, this is probably the classic passage in the entire Bible uh, on the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Isaiah writes of 
the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, a verse that's familiar to all of us, that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died, what? For us. He died for us. He died in our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, another familiar verse about the substitutionary atonement. It says that God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We, Christ was our sin substitute. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this, And he himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, for by his wounds you were healed. And then lastly, there in the next chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Christ died once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Now, I know of no better illustration of these verses than the story of Barabbas. Now, all four Gospels include the story of Barabbas. The only other time that Barabbas is mentioned in the Bible is Acts chapter 3, Verses 13 and 14, where Peter mentioned him in one of his sermons where he was confronting the Jews for crucifying their Messiah. In Acts chapter 3, verse 13, it says this, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life. Now let's remember the, the background here, back in John 18. After Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went before the Jewish religious leaders who pronounced him guilty of blasphemy and condemned him to die, and yet the Jews living under Roman rule at the time had no authority to kill anyone, and so they had to present a convincing case to the Roman governor who was presiding over Uh, over Judah at the time in hopes that he would execute the condemned criminal. And so the religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate and uh, they laid out their trumped up charges against Jesus. And they accused him specifically of being a political rebel who claimed to be the king of the Jews and was stirring up a revolt against Roman rule and forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. By the way, had they talked about that during the Jewish trial? That wasn't even an issue. It was all about him being a blasphemer. 
Well, they knew that wouldn't hold up in a, in a Roman court, a Gentile court, and so they had to trump up these charges, and they wanted Pilate to think that Jesus was a threat to the Roman government. And as we saw last time, Pilate briefly cross-examined Jesus in verses 28 through 38, and he was amazed that Pilate was amazed he didn't, that Jesus didn't defend himself, which in Pilate's mind proved his innocence, and so he pronounced him not guilty. Verse 38, and when he said this, he went out to the Jews and said to him, I find no guilt in him. There was no evidence that he saw to convict him of anything, let alone crucify him. He was convinced that Jesus was an innocent man who deserved to be released, not crucified. He hadn't violated any Roman laws. He posed no threat to Pilate or or to Rome itself. In fact, the charge that Jesus was an insurrectionist bent on overthrowing the Roman government was, was laughable to Pilate. Just absolutely absurd. He didn't look or sound or act anything like the other insurrectionists that they had arrested over the years. In fact, most recently, a guy named Barabbas. And yet Pilate was caught in a political pickle. And because of his past track record with with the Jews, he'd already done some stupid things, uh, really evil things that had caused the Jews to to revolt against him. They despised Pilate. They they were trying to get rid of Pilate, trying to get him to lose his job, and they eventually did get him recalled to Rome. But at this point, Pilate knew he couldn't afford to do anything else that would infuriate the Jews. The Jews, he was already on thin ice. He could lose his job. He might even lose his head. And so he attempted a, a number of evasive moves here to avoid another conflict with the Jews. And the first thing he tried was to pass the buck to Herod, who ruled over the region of Galilee where Jesus lived. And Herod was in Jerusalem at the time for the Passover celebration. And so Pilate sent Jesus to him and said, hey, listen, he's under your jurisdiction. You deal with him. And so Jesus' trial before Herod is not recorded here in John. It's in the white space here between verses 38 and 39. But let's just look back at Luke, Luke 23, and let's read the account of Jesus' trial before Herod. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 6. The Jews had mentioned that uh, he was stirring up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And it says, when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. He was thinking, oh, maybe this is my way out. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at the time. Verse 8, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. So it didn't take long to see what a fool Herod was. Uh, he, he thought that uh, Jesus was just a magician of sorts and he was looking forward to see some show. Hey, do one of your little tricks, Jesus. Do one of those miracles. I, I, I've heard about him. I want, I want to see it with my own eyes. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. In other words, Jesus had absolutely nothing to say to this guy. That's not good, by the way. You don't, you don't want to be that guy, that Jesus has absolutely nothing to say to you. I'm not even going to give you the time of day. You're, you're not worth my breath because you're such a fool. 
In other words, Jesus was not casting his pearls before swine at this point. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. So the, the chief priests and the scribes kind of followed along with Jesus as he went. Pilate sent him to Herod, and here they come. They come following along, and they're, they're saying all these things and accusing him. They're out of control now. These are the prosecuting attorneys that weren't going to take no for an answer. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. They just made fun of him. Dressed him up like a king. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. That's strange, isn't it? That these two men who were enemies all became friends because they, they, they both found themselves faced with this dilemma, this, this man named Jesus. They finally had something, one thing in common. The one thing they would never forget as long as they lived. And I would say even now for all eternity. If they never came to know Christ, we have no evidence that they did. So Herod just crassly clowned around with Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. And now Pilate was running out of options. And He was desperate to find some legal loophole that would enable him to release this innocent man and at the same time appease the Jews. He had one more potential solution up his sleeve. You're still there in Luke, Luke 23. Let's continue to read. Luke 13, excuse me, Luke chapter 23, verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. I mean, this is the theme, by the way, of this trial before Pilate, he said over and over and over again, at least four times that I can see, hey, this is an innocent guy. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's not guilty. I'm letting him go. Four times he tried to get, get him get, get, to release Jesus. Notice verse 17. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. It was the custom of the Romans that as a favor to the people over which they ruled to release for them any political prisoner that they wanted on their national holiday just happened to be the Jews' national holiday, Passover. And so he was referring to this custom and, and Pilate thought that this might be the way to pacify the Jews. But notice verse 18, they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. You're like, who's that? Well, Luke tells us in parentheses here, he was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for what? Murder. So here was a well-known criminal, obviously all the Jews knew this guy's name, he was maybe some kind of a hero of sorts, a well-known, well-known criminal here, some sort of zealot whose fanatical agitation with the 
Roman oppression motivated him to take part in, in, in an uprising against the government that involved robbery. We know John said he was a robber. Uh, here, Luke says he was a murderer. So whatever he did involved robbery and murder. Sounds like an armed robbery that went bad. And he'd been apprehended and he'd been sentenced to death. And at that very moment, he sat chained in a prison awaiting crucifixion. Verse 20, Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt, demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified and their voices began to prevail and Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, i.e. Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison. Again, Luke reminds us here, doesn't want us to miss this, for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. I think as Pilate thought this thing through, trying to get out of this sticky situation that he was in, he assumed that Barabbas was the last guy that the Jews would ever want to see set free. I mean, this is obviously a guy that Pilate didn't want to release, didn't want to let slip through his fingers. But the reason why he offered to pardon Barabbas is because who in their right mind would want a criminal like Barabbas running around loose? Well, what Pilate didn't realize was that the Jews weren't in their right minds, were they? And he was shocked. I think he was totally surprised, taken off guard when he offered them a choice between Barabbas and Jesus. He, he thought he, he could play on the crowd a bit. He knew the religious leaders were off their rocker. They were just jealous as all get out. They wanted to remove, remove the com- kill the competition. And he's thinking, hey, maybe I'll appeal to the crowd. Because he knew, he, saw, he knew about Jesus coming in a week earlier. And they were all praising him as Hosanna, the Messiah, right? Maybe they'll ask for Jesus. And he'll say, hey, I'm going give, to give him up to you. Your people say they want Jesus. He was thinking this was his way out. But they insanely exchanged their own Messiah for a murderer. Like, how does that happen? Well, we, don't, we won't look over there, but according to Matthew, Pilate's wife, in the midst of this trial, sent a message, you remember? She had a dream about Jesus. And so she said to her husband, hey, don't have anything to do with this guy. He's a righteous man. And apparently, that got Pilate's attention enough where he went and deliberated with his wife. She shared the details of her dream. Uh, that gave the religious leaders enough time to persuade the crowd to ask for Barab- Barabbas' release. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 20, it, it, it says that. It says, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. So here the prosecuting attorneys 
the judge is out of the courtroom and they're, they're going through the, the, the crowd and they're getting everybody to say, hey, when he comes back in, this is what we want you to ask for. And, and, and don't take anything but that. You say, well, how did they convince the people to go along with their scheme? Well, they may have used an argument something like this. Hey, let's be honest, guys. How could anyone who's not considered a threat by Pilate or the Romans be our Messiah? Come on, Pilate didn't even think he's a threat. Rome, he's not a threat. How could he be our Messiah? We all know the Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah. He's not going to be a helpless prisoner. He's going to be a conquering king. He's going to be a powerful leader. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. Listen, Barabbas is more of a Messiah than Jesus ever will be. That may have been their line of reasoning. And in the people's minds, there was a lot of truth to this. I mean, they had anticipated Jesus riding into Jerusalem and taking over and establishing the Messianic kingdom, and now he was in custody of the Roman government. It didn't look like he even cared. He wasn't, there was no fight. He wouldn't even speak. He wouldn't even defend himself. And now he's at the mercy of the Romans, and the Jews despised the oppressive rule of the Romans. So anyone who was arrested... For any kind of insurrection, again, this is why Barabbas may have been some kind of patriotic hero. He, he, was, he was fighting against Rome. We like that. But the insanity of this entire debacle, this kangaroo court, if you will, was that the Jews insisted the release of a man who had committed the very same crime that they accused Jesus of committing, committing and wanting to kill him for it. What were they trying to get Pilate to accuse Jesus of? Insurrection. And what did Barabbas, what, what did he have done? Insurrection. Makes absolutely no sense. And I think at that point, God had given over, like it says in Romans 1, his own people the nation of Israel, to give over their Messiah. They, they, were, they were not thinking straight. They were insane. And so Pilate's last-ditch effort here to salvage the situation failed. And the more he tried to reason with the crowd, the more unruly they became. And he had a riot in the making here. And the last thing he wanted uh, was to have a riot, especially during Passover, and so Pilate caved in to the angry mob and he gave the Jews what they wanted. But I think it's interesting, in Matthew, it says that he performed a Jewish ritual in an attempt to exonerate himself of this great injustice. Remember what he did? He had that bowl of water brought to him and he washed his hands. And this is what he said in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it that yourselves. And all the people said, ooh, and this just should make us cringe. His blood shall be on us and our children. That's fine, Pilate. We're not going to hold you accountable. You don't need to worry about it. It's on us. The crucifixion of Christ is on us. And then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. 
that washing of his hands was symbolic. One commentator wrote this, if the ruling elders of a Jewish city were not able to determine the identity of a murderer, the Mosaic law provided that they would publicly could publicly wash their hands, pray to God, and thereby absolve themselves of any guilt regarding their inability to render justice. And so he was, he was playing to their custom here. And like politicians often do, Pilate compromised his integrity for expedience. He knew, he knew, he was convinced that Jesus wasn't guilty and he really wanted to release him. And yet, in order to save face and maybe his job and his life, he let a guilty man go free and an innocent man be killed in his place. That's the bottom line of the story of Barabbas. An innocent man died so a guilty man could go free. Did you get that? An innocent man died so a guilty man could go free. Jesus was literally crucified in the place of Barabbas. I appreciate what Kent Hughes suggests here. I was going to read for you uh, something that he wrote. Just suggesting what Barabbas may have heard as he was incarcerated just feet away from where this trial was being uh, was going down, that he, co- he could probably hear some of what was happening, but not everything. This is what Ken Hughes says, the praetorium was no more than 1,500 feet from the tower of Antonia. Barabbas, because he was a prominent prisoner, was incarcerated in the bowels of Antonia, awaiting crucifixion. He probably could not hear Pilate, but it would be impossible not to hear the roarings of the crowd. Here is Pilate's dialogue with the crowd. We just read it. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And the crowd yells out, Barabbas! What shall I do then with Jesus who's called Christ? Crucify him! Why? What crime has he committed? Crucify him! Pilate washed his hands. I'm innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Let his blood be on us and our children. So what might have Barabbas heard? It may have been, this is all he heard. Barabbas, crucify him. Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. As hardened as he was, Hughes writes, Barabbas must have grown faint. He may have stared at the palms of his hands in growing horror of the awaiting agony. He had seen crucifixions. He knew their interminable agony. He heard the sound of the key in the lock, felt even greater terror, and suddenly he was released from his chains and told he was free. He was probably in a daze when he emerged into the sunlight. Slowly, the truth unfolded. Jesus Christ was dying in his place. We know the scripture records that Jesus was crucified on a cross between, what? Two robbers. Two robbers. Mark said in his gospel that Barabbas was imprisoned with the insurrectionists. So you've got robbers and insurrectionists 
all in jail at the same time. Barabbas was one of several, obviously, who'd been arrested and convicted of robbery and murder. And so I don't think it's too wild to suggest that the two thieves or robbers who were crucified on either side of Jesus were two of Barabbas's co-conspirators and partners in crime. And guess what? Barabbas had been scheduled to be crucified along with them on that very day. And what that might mean is that Jesus likely hung on the very cross that was originally intended for Barabbas. Barabbas was that guy supposed to be in the middle. Jesus served as Barabbas's what? Substitute. Barabbas was the first person who could look at the cross and say, that should have been me up there. That's what all of us should say when we look at the cross. We see Jesus hanging on the cross, that should have been me. He was the first one that could literally say, that should have been me. Years ago, I was given a, a track, a little, little pamphlet here, um, that simply is titled Barabbas. And I'll never forget reading this the first time. It's a, it's a, it's, I've never forgot it. And uh, obviously it's fictitious, but it is fascinating to think about. I just wanted to read it for you and, uh, and, and see kind of the emotion that may have been a part of this exchange, this substitution. Barabbas, he grasped the bars of his cell door as he heard the footsteps of the Roman guards coming down the long stone corridor. Sweat was pouring down his face, his sides down his back. He knew they were coming to get him. They would first whip him with a cat of nine tails. This whip had small stones at the end of the leather so as to tear the flesh off his back. Then they would nail him to a cross next to his partners in crime. He could not believe his ears. You're free, Barabbas. Pilate granted you a pardon. God only knows why, the chief guard grumbled as he approached. He removed the chains from his wrists and ankles The door's open, out with you, but woe to you if we ever catch you again. How could this be? He, Barabbas, a rebel, a murderer, had been set free? Suddenly he hesitated. Was this just another trick that Pontius Pilate had thought up? Could he really accept this this pardon and walk out a free man? Just then one of the guards said angrily, a a man named Jesus of Nazareth is going to die in your place. I don't understand it either. His only crime is claiming to be the promised Messiah, yet they, mur- yet, yet they let murdering scum like you go free. Now get out of here. Three weeks before, Barabbas and his band had attacked a Roman money transport and had killed five of the hated Roman soldiers. But something had gone wrong. Immediately, Roman reinforcements had appeared. Only he and two of his friends had escaped their avenging swords. The angry soldiers dragged them through the city in chains and cheered as they were condemned to die by means of crucifixion. But now all that had changed. He still could not believe it. He was free, free. His two friends, however, would die today on a cross as scheduled. But there was nothing he could do about it. Still, he was driven to the place of execution. He simply had to see this man who was going to die in his place. 
Barabbas' two friends who were held in a different prison, had already been taken away to Golgotha, the place of execution. So he began to make his way there. The crowds were so thick that Barabbas had a hard time pushing through. When he finally arrived on top of the hill of Golgotha, Jesus was already hanging on the cross. On either side were Barabbas' two friends, Eshtal and Reuben. All around him, he heard nothing but sarcastic and taunting remarks. You helped others. Now let's see if you can help yourself. If you're really the Messiah, then you come down from the cross. Even Eshtol, his friend, hanging on the left cross, shouted, So you're the Messiah, are you? Well, prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Or are you a fraud after all? Reuben, the one on the right cross, angrily yelled at Eshtol, Don't you fear God, even in the hour of death? The two of us justly deserve to be hanging here in agony. But this man between us has done nothing wrong. He's absolutely innocent. He then turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Barabbas could hardly believe his ears. His old friend Reuben, the proud, cruel, cynical, cold-blooded murderer who feared neither man nor beast, called this man Lord in front of all these people. Jesus answered, I promise you that today you shall be with me in paradise. As he said, this darkness fell over the whole land, although it was high noon. Barabbas could not remove his eyes from the man in the middle, blood trickling down his cheeks from the crown of thorns jammed on his head, his face virtually unrecognizable from the severe beating by Pilate's soldiers, the skin from his body hanging in shreds from the whipping, and still, wasn't there a glow in that face? As he stared at Jesus, tears came into his eyes, the first he could ever remember. This Jesus was suffering was dying for him. Jesus was taking the punishment that he, Barabbas, rightly deserved. If it hadn't been for this this substitution, he, Barabbas, would now be suffering the excruciating pain of crucifixion. In the darkness, with only the flickering light of the torches bouncing off the crosses, his mind went back over his 42 years. What a disaster his life had been. It was a life of hate and violence ever since he could remember. And now another was paying the penalty for him, was taking the punishment that he rightly deserved. He suddenly also remembered his beautiful mother who had died at an early age and she had read to him many times out of the books of the prophets how they had foretold of the coming of the Messiah. He could still picture as she read with shining eyes, but he was wounded and bruised for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was lashed and we were healed. God laid on him the guilt and sins of every one of us. But who among the people of that day realized it was their sins that he was dying for and he was suffering their punishment. Barabbas suddenly realized that he himself was meant by this passage. That Jesus was suffering his punishment, he could never again be accused of all the crimes that he had committed because Jesus, by his death, had paid for all of his misdeeds, no matter how vicious, cruel, or sadistic they had been. The penalty for his sins had been paid in full. Now again, that's fictitious, But I find it interesting that Alfred Edersheim, in his classic 
reference work on the life of Christ called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah supports that opinion, supports that scenario that there were three robbers who were to die that day and Barabbas was one of them. And Jesus died in his place. Now we don't know for sure what whatever happened to Barabbas and what he did with this second chance that he had been given when Christ died in his place, and ultimately we won't know until we get to heaven, but what really matters this morning is what are you going to do with your second chance? What are you going to do with Christ's death? I hope you see the profound parallel between Barabbas and you. You are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. We all are Barabbas. All of us, like Barabbas, are guilty of sinful rebellion. We are insurrectionists on planet Earth, rebelling against our our maker and our sovereign God, and we are all condemned to die. We're on death row. The Bible says that All of us have sinned and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is what? Death. But just like Jesus was accused and condemned and crucified for the very same crime that Barabbas had committed, insurrection and rebellion, guess what? He died for the very same sins that we've committed. Insurrection and rebellion against God the Father. And what Jesus did literally for Barabbas, he has done and will do spiritually for all of us who are willing to turn from our sin and place our faith alone in his death on the cross to save us, to rescue us from death and hell. An innocent man died so that guilty men like you and like me, could be set free. That's the gospel according to Barabbas. Another great commentator that I have grown to love over the years, Donald Gray Barnhouse, has written this. Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But, I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place, for it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved that the wrath of God should be poured upon me. I deserved the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. He, is delivered up, he was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. This is why we speak of the substitutionary atonement. Christ was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. That is why I say that Christianity can be expressed in three phases, phrases. Number one, I deserved hell. Number two, Jesus took my hell. And number three, there is nothing left for me but heaven. That's Christianity. Let's pray. Father, this is truly amazing grace, amazing mercy, 
we who are so undeserving. Lord, those of us who, really all of us, Lord, who have rebelled against you, our creator, our controller, our sustainer, wanting to live our lives for ourselves, doing our own thing, running away from you, sinning against you more times than we can remember. Lord, we've lost track of all of our sin, and yet you put it all on Christ. And I pray, Lord, if there's people here, and I know there are, who have yet to truly repent and truly commit their life to follow Jesus Christ, to embrace this, uh, to receive this amazing gift of your grace that is not anything that we could ever work for or earn, but it's something that you accomplished for us through the life and death of your son, Jesus Christ. And even this horrific trial, this, this, this amazing miscarriage of justice that we've studied this morning was all part of your sovereign plan to secure salvation for those who would repent and believe. And so we thank you that even while Christ was being falsely accused, he never reviled in return, but he simply entrusted himself to you who judges righteously. I pray that we would follow his example. Lord, if we're in situations where we're treated, being treated unfairly, unjustly, that we would remember that you know and that you will vindicate us in your way and your time, even as you did your son, Jesus Christ, who after he died, you raised him from the dead and you exalted him to your right hand in the heavenlies. And we're here to worship him today and thank him for his great sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for being our substitute. And I pray that you would also help us to get so excited about this good news that we've experienced, that we couldn't keep it to ourselves. And we'd want to tell everyone else we know of how they can be saved because of the substitute that Christ served on our behalf. We pray this in his name. Amen.